Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. My name is Kif Scheuer. I'm the Climate Change and Program Director at the Local Government Commission. I'll be your host for a monthly series on adaptation and livable communities, where we will discuss ways we can create more resilient communities by fostering knowledge exchange, identifying new resources, and sharing innovative perspectives and tools. Today, our guest is Liz Williams-Russell. Liz is the Coastal Community Resilience Director at the Foundation for Louisiana, where she designs strategies to support communities influenced by land loss and relative sea level rise across coastal Louisiana. With a background and training in architectural design, landscape systems, and urban planning, Liz incorporates the complexities of developed urban ecosystem to promote equitable opportunities in areas altered and affected by land change. Liz supports fundraising initiatives and guides the common campaign and funding plan across foundation for Louisiana's Coastal Resiliency Leverage Fund. Liz, thanks so much for joining us today. Let's jump right in. Thanks for having me, Kev. So for many of us, Louisiana has been front and center since 2005 when the devastating Hurricane Katrina hit, but I'm guessing there's a longer and deeper story there. Can you tell us a little bit about the foundation, how it came to be, and what its objectives are? Absolutely. So in the days following Katrina, as everyone was responding to levee breaches and the needs for community partners on the ground, Louisiana Disaster Recovery Fund was created. The foundation uh, was initially established as Louisiana Disaster Recovery Fund five days after Katrina. The reality is that many of our disaster response activities are actually designed for people with resources and access to education to be able to most easily benefit from those systems. The foundation was meant to be a partner in helping to get those resources out to partners on the ground. So we received donations from many large philanthropic institutions at a national level, as well as opportunities like text this number and and be able to get money out on the ground. But to really recognize that many communities were being left out from the disaster recovery opportunities and really be able to target those resources to get them to our community-based partners and those larger infrastructural community-based systems. Thanks so much for outlining that. It seems to me that the history and the geography and the landscape of Louisiana perhaps contributed to this situation in ways that just a climate disaster don't quite account for. Tell us a little bit about that and tell us about the maybe unique circumstances that have put Louisiana at the forefront of this conversation. So Louisiana's coastal crisis did not begin as one centered on climate change. As many folks know here in Louisiana, most of southern Louisiana was actually built by annual spring flooding from the Mississippi River over thousands of years. So spreading that muddy water across the delta to build layers of new land on an annual basis. Over the last century, we've stopped historic flooding uh, to allow for growth of communities and economies. We've permitted endless maritime oil and gas exploration and operation 
Commission, which has led to continued breakdown of the coastal landscape in partnership with the subsidence of the Delta through the levees from the Army Corps of Engineers and the lack of the ability to build those new layers of land. So for generations, our coastal communities across Louisiana have been watching the land disappear around them. The buffer of the wetland ecosystem that once protected those communities, as well as the city of New Orleans from severe storms, continues to disappear on a daily basis, uh, meaning that just in the last 15 years, Hurricane Katrina and Rita and Gustav, Ike and Isaac have brought a more substantial wrath to those communities. So the effects of the disasters are getting further inland based on that loss of the wetland buffer. And it was really in the moments after Katrina that there began to be a, a larger, more statewide recognition of the deterioration of that wetland ecosystem and the vast effects that that had in terms of our susceptibility to those severe storm events. So in those days following Katrina, there was increased recognition that we had to, as a state, invest in coastal restoration and measures to reduce our flood risk while rebuilding that wetland system, but also investing in other measures. And the state of Louisiana established the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority to begin addressing those needs and begin creating a plan, a comprehensive plan to restore the coast and and reduce risk to our communities within. So we actually, every five years, have a new iteration of the Coastal Master Plan since 2007, so another in 2012, and the most recent passed unanimously through the state legislature in the spring of last year in April of 2017. That's really fascinating that you guys have been able to hopefully respond forward, but it also sounds like there's been some serious challenges. How does the plan and maybe some of the other initiatives you've been involved in respond to what's been happening in a way that hopefully is actually starting to address more directly the issues that you're facing and maybe, and tell me if they are, helping to prepare Louisiana for a better response in the future? So the Coastal Master Plan has really catalyzed the state activities around restoring wetlands and reducing risk through measures that include restoration projects, as well as structural measures like levees, dikes, and dams, and non-structural measures that are more individual property and community-based, like flood proofing and elevating homes and voluntary acquisitions. The state has taken substantial steps to outline what a $50 billion plan over 50 years should look like. The reality is that that tends to be seen as as mostly environmental and addressing the environmental risks. And we haven't, up until very recently, gotten to a place where we're actually assessing the way that those environmental challenges, um, the acute and chronic stressors of daily land loss and daily flooding in some communities, as well as acute severe storms and acute disasters, actually affect many other things that we care about and affect our access to housing or our transportation routes, our infrastructure to support various economic opportunities. So when we start to think about the way that land loss and flood risk actually have these other vast implications to our social and economic systems, then we really have to think more comprehensively about how to address those efforts. So as you mentioned, I manage the Coastal Resilience Leverage Fund at the Foundation for Louisiana. And in the days following Katrina, obviously we were a disaster recovery fund. But in more recent years, we have been able to pivot and and shift that work 
work towards increasing resilience and improving community access to those measures to be more resilient and to reduce our risks. And so we've had a couple of initiatives that have really begun to build that capacity and expand the regional dialogue. Back in 2016, we had some funding from the Rockefeller Foundation that was designed to address some of the community concerns that we were getting from many of our local partners, that the master plan was great at beginning to address some of these risks, but the reality was those decisions were still being made outside of community and separate from the community partners who really experienced the intricacies of these challenges most intimately. Additionally, some of our community partners were going, you know, people are already leaving our community. And when someone moves away, there's a a change in that social fabric. What happens when we start to elevate seven homes here and buy out 12 properties there? And then there's another 15 people that haven't gotten access to any of that support. There's a social dynamic that shifts. Additionally, when I have a certain resident partner that said, when I have to evacuate from a storm, when I had to leave following Katrina, by the time I came back and was able to move back into my home six months later, and I was lucky and moving back into a trailer to get me back into that place, my employer had found another employee and we're bringing them in from Houston to work for that maritime and oil and gas operations and in that community that was really heavily experienced. So through the funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, we were able to sort of go, well, if there was an opportunity to fund an inclusive and equitable planning process where residents could be involved from the outset, what would that look like? And our resident partners helped us to design the sort of logistical needs. How many meetings did we have? At what scale did those meetings occur? Community or region or parish? Where do we think about transportation and childcare and food? But more broadly, how do we have these very difficult conversations about where people are moving to and where they're moving from and what we expect the risks to look like? over generations. In early 2017, we initiated a partnership with the state of Louisiana's Office of Community Development to implement that planning process, not only in the initial parish of Plaquemines that we had worked to design it, but in five other parishes that were also eligible for those resources from the National Disaster Resilience Competition. So the LA Safe planning process has really expanded the dialogue over the course of 2017 and allowed us to think more broadly about those other sectors and what the effects of land change and flood risk are and design responses and strategies that are projects and programs and policy recommendations with community-based partners who have, again, the most intimate experiences of these challenges on the ground. I think it's great that you're involving your community voices. I think that you're working in partnership. I really, it's the right way to go. I wonder, since you've been through a planning process, if you have some examples for our listeners of uh, things that came out of that that maybe you didn't expect or were really good to hear because they put a different lens or perspective or impact layer on it that really helped shape uh, the kinds of solutions that are emerging. So one initiative that came out of that planning process as well was that perhaps not surprising to some folks and surprising to others. The reality that people want to have these conversations with people that they already know and trust. They don't want as a government contractor coming into their community or a person, you know, from up the road, which is New Orleans or Baton Rouge here in the state of Louisiana, coming into our at-risk communities and sort of telling them what they're supposed to do or, or even facilitating these conversations to some extent. And so we were hearing from our community partners that 
those community-based leaders, people that were already known and trusted, members of the school board or a neighborhood association, fishing communities, or just a neighbor that folks listen to because they happen to watch the news or stay more well-informed than the other neighbors around them. How do we support the growth and capacity of those individuals and connecting their personal experience to this larger challenge so that those leaders on the ground can actually be supported in being those facilitators for these larger planning efforts. So we designed a program called Lead the Coast, uh, and it was actually a spinoff of the Foundation for Louisiana's LEAD program, part of our Together initiative, stands for Leadership, Education, Advocacy, Development. And across that training program over four Saturdays, we worked with residents to expand the understanding of coastal challenges. How did we get here? What are the future needs and opportunities? But also, who are the government players involved and what do they actually do? When do I go to FEMA? When do I go to CPRA? When do I go to the Office of Community Development? Or when do I go to my local parish planning office? And additionally, facilitation training, organizing training, and advocacy training. So by the time we began the LA Safe planning process in March of 2017, we had a group of residents who had been through that program who were ready to be table hosts, ready to be the facilitators of this community-based planning process in order to really expand the dialogue and make sure that the responses were grounded in community needs and a way of building trust and relationships. We were told by many folks who've been working in the coastal space in Louisiana for years and, and decades in some cases that it wouldn't be possible to go into communities and have conversations about what communities might look like decades or generations from now. In some cases, there are communities in extremely high-risk areas that might not be there. In other cases, there are communities that have seen vast population growth in the years following Katrina and have seen new stressors and, and challenges based on the fact that they're receiving that population growth. And we were told these would be impossible conversations to have in some of these communities. And what we found was when we went to folks and we said, look, we're here to support you in developing the responses to these challenges. We have seen this in the data, but we want to hear how you've experienced it. How have you seen environmental change? How have you experienced changes to the social fabric of your community? How have you seen shifts in what jobs you have access to? That opportunity for people to be able to connect their own personal experience, again, to what might be seen as larger trends that need to be addressed through various measures is a really pivotal moment and builds up trust as well as thought leadership across our region. That's exceptional to hear because I know that these are complex and, and often very challenging conversations. Gosh, you touched on a few things in a few different directions I want to go here. First, I wanted to, in that space of trust, one of the things that I see people grappling with is the complexity of the science and the scientific or even engineering kind of discussions that happen around climate change, climate adaptation, and the integration of that science with community needs. How did that go down? Did it go down? And tell us about the, some of those conversations where maybe some external science folks had to come in and or complex scientific information was being kind of discussed and assessed in this conversation. Great question, Giff. So this is where actually the history of the dynamic Louisiana and Mississippi Delta system 
really comes into play because it doesn't in Louisiana have to be a conversation just about climate change and what we have seen before, what we've already seen changing and the reality that we may not have ever experienced in normal human memory, some of the things that we might see on the horizon. In the state of Louisiana, people have been watching the landscape change around them and they've been watching the land disappear and the water get closer to their communities. So being able to say over the past 50 years, this is what we've seen in the last two generations. And this is what we expect to see. We're projecting that out into the future was really important in starting a dialogue. I think it's much more challenging to get to those places where we haven't actually experienced anything of what we could be projecting. But land loss and sea level rise are not foreign in the state of Louisiana already because of the way that the Delta dynamics work. Additionally, in the state of Louisiana, since the days following Katrina, through the coastal master plan, we have made tremendous investments in really incredible, sophisticated data and modeling that illustrates where we are expecting to see continued collapse of the delta and subsidence and where we expect to leverage the Mississippi River and the dynamics of that muddy water to really build new land and and begin to rebuild or recreate a buffer to some of our communities and some of our economic assets across the state. And so we have very sophisticated future data in Louisiana that's really granular and that illustrates where we are going to see salt marshes, where we're going to see brown shrimp because of those salt marshes, where we might see freshwater swamps over time and and where we're going to see open water. So being able to have that sophisticated wealth of information that's been created by the CPRA and the Water Institute of the Gulf, as well as other partners, is really critical to help us visualize out what the actual extent of land loss and flood risk over the next 50 years is expected to be. Now, obviously, that's only five decades and a couple of generations, but it helps us to think out across that time horizon and the reality of people having seen and experienced some of this change already. That connection of personal experience to the larger dialogue is really critical to that effect. I would say there are similar opportunities in other places, however, in the extreme precipitation that we're seeing and and floodwaters extend out into places that we haven't seen prior. Some of that because of faulty development practices in combination, obviously, with those flood events. But the relevance of tying someone's personal experience and valuing that and lifting that up as part of a dialogue is just so important if we're going to move forward in these very challenging sets of responses. I couldn't agree more. And I I really appreciate the frontline perspective you've had on these conversations. And you referred to them earlier as impossible conversations. And clearly they're not because you're having them. But when I talk to people out here in the Bay Area and we think we're kind of all that on climate change, the impossible conversation is retreat. Folks aren't ready to really talk about it firsthand, but it sounds like you've been part of and and seen those conversations. And I'd love for you to tell us how they go down. How do those conversations happen? How do people look at it when somebody says, you know what, we may not be here in 5, 10, 20 years? Yeah. So I think the important part, the mo- probably the most important critical first step is that we didn't go into these communities and say, look, you're not going to be here at this point. We went in and we said, tell us about your personal experience. We said, this is what we expect 
expect the data to look like. When folks are looking at the maps that visualize where we expect to see land, where we expect to not see land over time intervals of 10, 25, and 50 years, and then also, again, relating back to their personal experience, they are coming to those conclusions. So we actually had resident partners who who would say, look, I'm never leaving. This is my community. I'm going to die here. But my kids have already left or they've already moved one town up or they're not going to come back after they leave for this job or maybe I want them to have a better life. The reality was though that we didn't force that conversation. We tried to facilitate the opportunity for it to come about through people's personal experience and asking them to have conversations with each other and with our facilitators and our table hosts about their own personal experience. It's not as if someone has to come in and articulate what's going to happen. Our residents have already been seeing it. They've been seeing people move away and they've been seeing how their communities have changed. And so really, again, where there are places where it's tied into that personal experience, as well as the the best and most sophisticated scientific information opens up other doors and maybe a more honest and frank set of conversations. Thank you for sharing that perspective and history. I, I think you're right on. I wonder as a brief follow-up, obviously we don't want to wait until everybody is seeing the sort of water at their doorstep, as it sounds like many of your community members have. How do we have those conversations before it gets uh, so personal, but is still relevant and meaningful to act on? I think that's a tough question. Again, where people are moving from is not isolated from where people are moving to or where there are are sort of middle territories of what those shifts look like. So we have areas where that are high risk and projected to be high risk into the future where we have seen already population decline and where we expect that to continue to occur. We also have more moderate risk areas here in our working coast where we have many economic assets and opportunities and industrial current assets assets even as we work to transition away from some of those non-renewable sources, where those economic conditions are actually requiring communities to remain. And we expect population to sort of flatline in those areas. But on, on the reverse side of that, areas that are perceived as low risk, areas that are low risk, although in Louisiana, at the end of the Mississippi River, where we drain 41% of the US, most places are not no risk at all, right? In fact, there's probably nowhere that doesn't have any risk. So it's important to be able to have a dialogue that opens up those future possibilities and and that asks uh, community members what they would like to see. But that also acknowledges that they too have things to offer to that conversation and that there are best practices that have worked in certain areas with certain conditions of living with water to be able to, again, really open their understanding up to those opportunities and have them consider what a viable future looks like. I will say I don't think we have enough the detailed conversation around what viability means in this context. And the reality is that viability is often measured according to a traditional cost-benefit analysis that inherently is inequitable and does not prioritize communities without wealth or without real estate value or without even those industrial assets. So when we start talking about those areas where we don't have water at the doorstep, but it might be coming, and we're thinking about how do we support those communities to exist for some time, but also to transition, 
there are larger questions at play in terms of where investments make sense and where they don't and who's making those decisions. We don't actually have models that articulate an understanding of quality of life and environmental risk and viability in tandem with other social and economic metrics as a way of valuing projects and investments over time. And until we have a way of really measuring what's important that is more comprehensive, I think it's really difficult for us to be able to say where we cannot and where we can continue to invest in order to increase resilience and reduce risk over time. I think you're, again, really spot on with that. It's really hard to have both a conversation and sort of propose solutions if you don't know how you're valuing things or if how you're valuing things really is blind to some really critical human dimensions. I want to pick out something that you hinted at, but that for many people is completely not yet at the beginning of their conversation, which is where are people going? I had a bit of conversation about managed retreat, but I think you've seen a little bit more about where those people end up. And that's actually part of the calculation too, in some really interesting ways. And I'd love if you could share some of that with us. Yeah, we've been pulling apart both census data and postal data to see really where we're seeing community populations shift, both in those areas that are resettlement communities or where people are already leaving, as well as the areas people are going to and and moving to. Again, I just want to underline this reality that people tend to see the coastal crisis or coastal change as an environmental challenge. And when we start to think about shifting tax bases and resources and infrastructures, really that's where it starts to, for me, uh, stretch out into other sectors that haven't really seen themselves as needing to pay attention to flood risk or environmental change more broadly. In areas where people have moved from, you see a decline in availability of resources, a decline in social services, schools may be shutting down, the cost of living increases because it's less likely for you to be able to get a mortgage or your flood insurance is more expensive for various reasons. But then on the reverse side of that, in places that are growing, we're seeing schools that, and this has happened, I will say, in those areas where we have seen populations growing. In Louisiana, that has happened in sort of after catalytic events. So in the days and months following Katrina, we saw vast growth in places like the North Shore and like Baton Rouge, the North Shore, including Mandeville and Covington on the north side of Lake Pontchartrain. And in those areas, we saw traffic doubles, schools, is overpopulated, you all of a sudden don't have the available housing stock to really accommodate the needs of the residents who are moving there. So rental prices skyrocket or property values, if you're looking to purchase a home, there's less available to purchase or those you can't maybe afford to purchase a home. And then on the to continue that, in order to accommodate that growing population, you see development being permitted in all directions without any regard for how we should or should not be built and whether or not that should or should not be in a floodplain or in a wetland or adjacent to a floodplain or adjacent to a wetland. So you see tremendous new development in order to accommodate those areas that have been growing. And so in the floods of March and August of 2016 here in Louisiana, many of the areas that were flooded were actually areas where people had been moving to in the years following the many storms that I listed to move to higher, safer ground. But as that development has expanded, it's also encroached upon those wetland areas and those floodplains, and there's less space for the water to go. And we all 
know water has to go somewhere. So if I'm understanding you correctly, resiliency responses and adaptation planning are not just about the communities that are on the front lines, they're on the back lines as well, and that they may see some direct impacts completely irregardless of what's going on on the shore. Absolutely. I think it depends what you consider front lines, right? And there are, there are um, many facets to the challenges in the shifts in availability of resources and assets and existing programs or existing policies, frankly, that don't address comprehensively in any way the really the breadth of changes that we're seeing on the ground. Are you seeing any communities starting to talk to each other about these transfers of community and resources and some anticipation are coming to the table? I would say that that's beginning, but it's in the earliest of stages. It's something, I wouldn't say that it's happening substantially. And I would say in areas where there is currently a loss in population, there are disincentives from talking about the level of risk that's faced now or that that risk might be increased in the future. If you're seeing your tax base leave, you're not inclined to perhaps articulate the reality that maybe more people should also be considering that migration. We are also seeing migration though within individual parishes. And I think that's where there are more promising sets of conversations around that migration. So for some of our parishes that have consolidated governments where they don't have municipalities sort of of battling back and forth for resources, but they actually are just seeing the migration happen from those lowland areas to the higher grounds. I think those conversations are happening and and they're more possible. Where you're talking about movement from parish to parish and a loss of a tax base, we're not seeing those conversations happen yet. And I actually think the way that our jurisdictions are set up doesn't actually allow for that type of dialogue because those communities are already struggling. Because of the floods of 2016 and because of the LA Safe project, there are increased conversations happening around watershed-based decision-making. It's very early stages for those conversations, but I think that's where you might start to see investment decisions actually being prioritized more broadly and more regionally in order to accommodate the shifting dynamics. I don't know that that will move past sort of stormwater management unless there are other ways to increase and ensure revenue actually is available across those parish boundaries. When you're talking about tax base in particular, again, folks are not inclined to have those conversations. It's understandable given the story you're outlining there. So just to close, you've given us an incredible amount to think about, and our audience is really across the country. Some of them are more or less involved with these particular issues, but you are really, you're living it day to day and have a lot of firsthand experience, and thank you for sharing. There were two things you were going to say to potentially local governments, elected leaders, people working in the public sector on these issues as a key message or key actions that they might take now to start to get ahead of these questions. What would they be? I would say the first is break down your silos. The money that we're talking about to be able to holistically address adaptation needs for future generations is not able to be allocated according to traditional government sectors. We're going to have to think about simultaneously flood risk and affordable housing and transit to get to jobs as migration influences commuter patterns. That stretches across a whole set of sectors. And so we're going to have to find ways to be able to work together and think really strategically about leveraging resources and where actually spending money in one sector might save another sector money 
money towards the benefit of the broader tax resources or, or tax base more broadly. That would be the first. The second I would say is engage your communities, engage your resident leaders know that these challenges are not only immediate ones, they're challenges that will continue to evolve over decades and generations. If we're not investing in the thought leadership and partnership of our communities and investing in that capacity to address these very complex and challenging and interwoven issues, we're going to really be kicking ourselves later on as we experience the intensity of these challenges in the future. The capacity on the ground is an investment we've got to start making today. Wow, thank you for those two points. You know, and I could clearly keep talking about this all day long, but we're just about out of time. Liz, is there somewhere folks can go? to find out more about the work you're doing? Yeah. So I would go to lasafe.la.gov to hear more about the LA Safe planning process and in the middle of a revamp right now, but still available, foundationforlouisiana.org. And you can find more about our role more broadly in supporting community-based capacity and leadership coordination across the state. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having me, Kip. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.